if you think about Bill Gates and Warren Buffett and think about Elon Musk, these people don't follow logical scenarios. They don't follow primal desires of greed. They are investing in their excitement. They're investing in what shines brightest for them. And when everybody around them is telling them they're crazy, their hearts are telling them they're right. And that's right from the middle of today's conversation with yet another amazing guest. Hey, if we haven't met before, it's me, Karthik, and I'm here to help you find your mission, grow your business, and stand out in the crowd. Welcome back to the show where I sit down with the most creative thinkers, entrepreneurs, artists who have swam against the tide, made massive mistakes, and went on to create experiences, start movements that are changing the world. If this is the first time that you're tuning into the show, do consider subscribing. Just look for a subscribe button wherever you are listening to the show right now and just click that. In last week's episode, I had an artist who paints murals and tattoos. She quit her full-time job to pursue a business off of her art and has shown the world that artists don't have to starve and how thinking marketing first can make all the difference. If you haven't yet listened to it, do make sure you do. You can find the episode at designyourthinking.com slash S2E15. All right, in today's episode, I am super excited to bring to you yet another amazing guest, John Sane. He's an entrepreneur who's fascinated by the future. He writes books, speaks, and also helps companies and brands across the globe get comfortable about the future and helps them see opportunities that they never imagined for their businesses. No, he's not an astrologer, but he's a futurist. In this episode, we dive into deeper conversations about what he does, why he's doing it, and also explains clearly how you can look for trends and take your business to newer levels. Oh yes, if you've seen or liked James Cameron's avatar, you are going to love what John Sana is going to talk about towards the end of this episode because he shares a secret about Avatar that you probably didn't know so far. But before we jumped into the episode, here's a quick word of support. Think about this. Back in the early 2000s, a lot of creative business owners started using MySpace to showcase their work and also grow their businesses. Jim was one of them. But in just a few years, Facebook arrived and a lot of their businesses, including gyms, found themselves in a deserted place and had to literally start from scratch. Jim lost all his leads, customer contacts and everything else he had going on in, inside of MySpace. Now this is bound to happen when you rent a place like a social media platform to grow your business and brand. Here is something I want you to consider. Take full control of your business and your brand. Bring all your customers and leads into your own website. And you can do this all by yourself without having to spend thousands of dollars on a web agency. Thrive Membership by Thrive Themes can help you do just that. You can have a website completely from scratch in just a few hours. Thrive Membership comes with a ton of ready-made design templates, lets you collect email addresses and also comes with 11 powerful tools to build your business presence online. And for all of this, you just pay $19 a month, not a penny more. To learn more about Thrive Membership, head over to designyourthinking.com slash thrive. I use this personally and if you have any questions, do drop me an email to hello at designyourthinking.com with Thrive in the subject line and me or my team will be happy to help you get unstuck. Again, the link is designyourthinking.com slash Thrive. All right, let's get into the main episode. Let's start with the music.
from the DYT Studios. It's the Design Your Thinking podcast, a show about creators, entrepreneurs, and nonconformists, and the stories behind the decisions they made that completely changed the future of their lives and businesses. And now your host, Karthik. John, there's obviously more to your story than what you just do and uh, than what I said. Futurist, trend specialist. Can you quickly introduce yourself so my listeners know exactly what you do? Sure. Thank you so much for the opportunity. Um, I've been an entrepreneur my whole life and uh, through that process have uh, built a lot of businesses, made a lot of money and lost a lot of it. And in that process of losing the money, I had to become acutely focused on two very clear things, is the psychology of ourselves when preparation for the future, as well as what the actual future looks like. So what I do is I combine human psychology and future studies. And uh, the the, the future studies aspect is really about uh, categorizing and contextualizing the future and bringing it into boardrooms and decision-making corporates Um, in order for them to build the courage and clarity to make decisions about the future that make them feel uncomfortable. And in that process, also what's more paramount than the future is how we perceive the future, the psychology we have around it. Are we Mm. living a life based on a set of memories or are we living a life based on the vision of our future? And most of us are living a life based on memories and repetition. So my job and my highest fascination is to research, write, and speak about human psychology and futurism. Wow. You kind of re- remind me of Dr. Emmett Brown from Back to the Future trilogy. So uh, let, let's let's uh, tear this apart slowly. You know, I somewhere read about you that you were born in Swaziland. You yes. Know, what, what was life like when you when you grew up? Well, I mean, Swaziland was a very small little country in the tip of Southern Africa. Mm-hmm. And I suppose, you know, my mom and dad were pretty adventurous. They uh, made me when we when they were in Iran, because I'm Iranian, and they were six months pregnant with me when they arrived in Swaziland. And wow. obviously wow. in the 1970s, it was really rural. And um, I imagine it must have been really tough for them. You know, my mom was 19, my dad was 24. Hmm. And if you think about us at that age now, moving continents into right. a brand new place, I imagine it must have been tough for them. I had a pretty good childhood my mom and dad got divorced when I was eight years old and Mm -hmm. that really changed the trajectory of my life because I had to grow up very quickly I had to um, kind of look after my mom emotionally Mm -hmm. and I became the sort of man of the house at eight years old would put put a lot of pressure on me but also Mm -hmm. put me in good stead to grow up quickly wow and and then you go to school in Swaziland yeah, I went to school in Swaziland uh, for my primary school and for my high school, we moved to Johannesburg mm-hmm. and uh, I did my university in Johannesburg and then I went to go live in London for two, three, two and a half, three years and then I moved to Cape Town for a couple of years then back to Johannesburg and then now I live between Cape Town and New York. Wow. What took you to London? Uh, back in the 90s, there was this um, Commonwealth uh, agreement between England and South Africa, well, I suppose with all the Commonwealth countries, where you could work uh, for two years there on a two-year work visa before you were 30 years old. Mm. And so when I finished studying, I just decided that I needed a bit of a break and uh, went to go live in London for two and a half years or so. Absolutely loved it. And I actually started my first business from London because uh, I found a range of shoes that I thought were incredible and I brought them back to South Africa and they did exceptionally well. So wow. London was a fantastic space for me. Wow. So, so let's let's take it a step at a time. So you go to London, obviously you don't start a business the next day. Well, no, I was a barman and I was a waiter. I was living in a digs, which means I was living with other people in a house and I was just doing what a normal 21-year-old does when he's traveling and uh, right. with a backpack and not really taking life too seriously. 
And, and about a year into the, the, the process, I uh, just happened to come across these pair of shoes called acupuncture footwear. And mm-hmm. this was this was BG, which is before Google. Mm-hmm. And so um, I had to find the, the owners of the shoes through a telephone book, which took me a couple of weeks. Mm-hmm. Eventually, I got it. Eventually, at 24 years old, 23 years old, I got my the rights for the shoes. Mm-hmm. And I came back to South Africa and... Um, I got them into about 60 retail stores and some of the big chains, and it really put me into a good position financially to buy my first restaurant when I was 24. Wow. So you you do these um, deals with these retail outlets to sell those shoes, and then what transitioned you from from that into – what made you think about food and restaurants? Well, I, I'm not really a I'm not really a restaurateur or a fashion person or a, I'm, I've been I'm I'm still involved in many different businesses. My my I've got this inherent gift. I'm actually writing about it now in my next book. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm almost I'm a very early adopter. I can see trends and I can see brands that are going to be really big before a lot of other people can. And so mm. I kind of jump onto the bandwagon when I do see something with potential and I try and work with them. So mm. with my shoes, with my uh, clothing brands, with my retail stores, with my restaurants, all of them was just choosing a brand that I could see was going to be very big. And uh, so I'm, I, I think I'm just very good at spotting trends. I'm very bad at um, running businesses long term. I get absolutely bored. So um, I've got always many different businesses going. I'm great at starting them and I've got to sell them because uh, they bore me when they start running smoothly. So you start these restaurants and you, you become rich. Yeah, I mean, it was fantastic. I mean, I was very young. Um, 26, 27 years old. I was a multimillionaire. I had a few restaurants, a few retail stores, sports cars, fancy houses, fancy wow. clothes, fancy friends. But you know, this is where the magic happens because I think one of the most dangerous, um, sort of dangerous things to mix is uh, high levels of testosterone and lots of money. It's a horrific mix. And because, uh, you know, you, you, your ego right. and your arrogance grows exponentially hmm. uh, linked to your hmm. bank account. And um, at 30 years old, I lost everything. And I, I just made too many, like, just childish decisions. Wow. And uh, from that process of bankruptcy, really, did, 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 did my career now begin? You know, the healing of that depression after your bankruptcy is really one of the biggest tasks you have in your life to, to come back from losing everything. That's pretty hard. Can you give, give me a sense of how it was to rebuild yourself uh, and your career and everything from that point on to where you're today? Well, I think that the, the genius of uh, victim mindsets or depression is that often you don't know you're being a victim or depressed. And there's many different types of victims. You know, you you got to become aware that you carry some victim traits, if not all of them. And hmm. that awareness in itself becomes the magic formula in order to give you the impetus to want to move from there. So, you know, and what usually happens is when we do sit in victim mindsets, uh, we attract people that sit in the same victim mindset. Right. And so then right. what we do is we complain and don't take responsibility and blame everything around us not taking responsibility in one way or another and so do all our friends and because of that we feel justified in our thinking so whether you're angry with the government you're angry with your past or anybody more successful than you is obviously a thief or entitlement because you're a man or because you're a woman uh, you're entitled to x y and z you're entitled to nothing to be honest and so the awareness of that becomes the first thing and and, and after about five years of really being depressed i realized that it was really just my own making. And uh, I started studying a lot. And I, and I studied this guy called Dr. Joe Dispenza. And what he says is that everybody has a personality. Everybody has a mind. This mind is made up of a personality. This personality is made up of your behaviors. These behaviors are made up of your habits. And these habits are made up of your rituals. And when I understood that our reality is just made up of minute by minute, second by second rituals, wow. I was able wow. to then change my thinking bit by bit. I think a lot of people get overwhelmed with wanting to change their energy and focus and they don't realize that they don't have to change the whole thing. They just have to change one small thing at a time and just focus on one small thing at a time. And once I started doing that, 
I went from a space of not being able to pay rent to living in two of the most beautiful cities in the world just by shifting my focus points and becoming aware that any thought that I have, any action that I have that's not based on an upward spiral and rather than a downward, downward spiral, right. um, I stop. You know, so it's it's a mental game, and I'm very lucky that I've been doing it for 12 years or so, and mm. I've kind of become norm to be focused on where I'm going rather than where I've been. And so, mm. in this process, uh, it becomes easy then to start creating and innovating and disrupting and moving forward because you've left the past behind and you're much more focused on creating a better future than from the past you've come from. Wow, this that's pretty deep. You know, you you talk about the future a lot. And that word's kind of getting used so much these days, you know, from media to boardroom. Tell me about a day when you kind of discovered your deep interest in future. Self-awareness is one, yeah. but then future, how? So for me, for me, the the you're right. You know, every, you know, if you think about the press about five, seven years ago, the word that was being thrown around everywhere was innovation. Hmm. everybody was innovative anybody had an innovation department now everybody has an innovation department it's obvious it's an obvious thing you know? right but then, then about about two years ago the word changed and it became disruption and then everybody was disrupting and everybody's being disrupted and and you're right you know these words kind of get thrown around our vocab and future is very much one of them right. and i kind of like to steer away from actually just talking about the future because i think what's much more important than the future is the preparation for it is really about how do we become agile? How do we become flexible? How do we become, how do we celebrate success differently rather than basing it on the way we used to? And kind of my my first inclination that I was like this is if I think back was about when I was about seven years old, I was in Swaziland and mm-hmm. I saw a pair of Nike shoes. Mm-hmm. And back then, in, and we're talking 1981, there was no advertising for Nike. I'd never seen a pair of Nikes before. And, right. and there was no Michael Jordan. There was no Google. There was nothing, you know? Right. And I just knew. I, I don't know why. I just had this inherent knowing that this brand was going to be amazing. And I really got everything within my will to try and get my mom to buy me a pair because she was a single mom and she had much money. Right. So, I mean, I remember just being always aware of what, like what was next and uh, that's just a gift you know and now my gift i'm able to make a a a good living out of my gift and uh, helping people understand the future better you know like you said it's it's a it's a very important point as to not focus on the future rather you're saying focus more on the present and try to understand deconstruct the present so you understand which is what you did Back when you were well, I think you know one, it's one thing to be in the present. It's impossible to be in the present when you still got hurtful memories, hmm. where you're still blaming your past and you're still anxious about your future. You have to heal yourself to be in the present. You can't just focus on trying to be in the present. So once you're healed and once you've taken out all those hooks that have hooked you to memories hmm. and anxiousness and all those things, present becomes the only option you have. So a lot of people get mistaken with the fact that they practice being in the now, being in the now, and, and it's not a practice. It's it's what you do in your healing process that makes it obvious to, for yourself to be in the now. So obviously you need to be in the now because in the now is where your creativity lies, where your innovation lies, where your excitement lies. Right. And so when, you, right. when you're in the now is one thing, but you also need to know the GPS coordinates of roughly where you're going. That's why you need to understand and categorize and contextualize the future so you can understand mm-hmm. what, who, and when are you preparing for. And when you understand those sort of GPS coordinates, then you come back into the now and you bring your creativity into the moment to prepare for it. John works with companies of all sizes as an international speaker and a trend strategist. It's one thing to actually come to understand our interests, but, you know, it's a whole different thing to actually use our interests to help others. In John's case, these others happen to be big corporations. I was curious to know more about his experience helping these big corporations. Uh, that's nice. Uh, this is really nicely put. So when we talk about, when we use this word future, at least when people use the word future, the, the conversation invariably gets into like talking about artificial intelligence or machines, robots, and name what. Now you work with companies, corporations, and business owners and, and the like. Uh, and, and you've been kind of carefully dealing with this word future, and I see that very clearly. 
based on what you've done, how do you respond when a corporation or a company or a business owner comes and talks about the fear of whether the business is going to be what they're going to do in the future? Yeah, well, I think every business is in that position. Well, not every. I think a very high percentage of businesses are very, very scared hmm. of what's coming. Hmm. Because the generation of baby boomers and ex-generationers that are actually running the organizations and corporations, mostly uh, men, hmm. are hmm. unable to be agile because we often as men become both prisoners and wardens of our past success. Hmm. And so it's very <laughs> difficult to let go of these past successes and their egos. Right. Right. And I call them teenage boys stuck in men's bodies. And it's the need for more and the greed for more and the constant chase that puts them at a weak place in order to prepare for the future. What they have to do is let go of their teenage ways of greed in order to prepare with elegance and deliberation because the future is unknown and illogical. Mm. You cannot prepare with what you've done and with logic. So really all organizations are in the same position because the leadership that's running them is stuck in the past. It's not preparing for the future. As much as they claim they are, they're not. So what I do with organizations, I get them to split their organizations into three sections. The first section I call the today team, mm -hmm. the team that focuses on the one to two year focus points, the, the right. team that's right. keeping the lights on and paying the salaries. Right. But you need to have a very strong tomorrow team. And your tomorrow team is data scientists, chief digital officers, artificial intelligence specialists, blockchain enthusiasts, right. and these sort of people that make up your two to five year team. And then you have a day after team, people that are preparing for seven, and a year, seven years and more. And so what happens is that the organization then becomes comfortable in what it's preparing for. I think the m biggest frustration and confusion comes in with an organization has been bonused quarterly, but asking to plan in five-year cycles or 10-year cycles. Mm -hmm. It's just mm -hmm. impossible to do. It's like training for a marathon and then going to run with sprinting team. You just can't. You have, it's a different form of training. It's a different form of celebration. It's a different form of budgeting. It's a, di it's a, different, it's a different business. Right. So – what I do is I give them that sort of courage and clarity to move into and split their businesses so they can still worry about the day-to-day -day business, but they have people that are not worried about the day-to-day -day and really just focused on the coming years. And so I think that what that, that, what, what that does, it alleviates the pressure that people are feeling at the moment. Interesting. So, you know, like you earlier talked about, the first thing is awareness. I mean, you, you need to be aware. I mean, when you lost all of it from a financial standpoint, it was the awareness that kicked in first. And after that, did you start to seek, you know, meaning and stuff like that before you got into understanding how important routines and uh, rituals are? So talking about corporations, they, they are much bigger. They, I, I kind of imagine corporations to be bigger humans, right? They, they are organized like people, but then much complex, much more complex. How do you... How do you see organizations typically get to this realization, this moment of awareness? I don't think a lot of them do, to be honest. <laughs> I, don't, I think a lot of them want to. I, don't, I, don't, I really think a lot of the corporations that I deal with, even though I go in with everything I'm doing, mm -hmm. I think it's really difficult for those leaders to change. I think they have to just move aside and get really the younger people to come and start making decisions about their future. You know? Right. You know, the few, you know, I, I often say this, and I think it's a bit of a crude example, but I'll say it anyway, is that it's like asking a man to design a It's almost impossible. You know what I mean? It's, we don't have and You can't go design a business solution for a market that you don't understand and you're so out of tune of. So as much as they want to change and there's a willingness to change, I think it's impossible <laughs> for them to change unless they drastically change the team of people making decisions and they drastically go and they really do the self-work to bring that awareness and consciousness to themselves. So they right. stop measuring their success based on profit, but on impact, where they move away from wanting to always use their balance sheet as the beginning of their strategy team hmm. to where do we go about making purposely driven impact into the world. That shift is a consciousness shift. When an organization can't do a consciousness shift, 
They cannot move forward into the world we're going into. They are using tools from yesterday trying to get prepared for tomorrow. And those tools are our focus point and our consciousness and what we measure and celebrate as success. So what organizations need to do is become more conscious and aware. They can't do strategy sessions and have trained specialists coming in. They can have them till the cows come home. But if they're not willing to change their consciousness, nothing's going to change. Oh. Very, you know, very, very, very straight and clearly put. Now, uh, you've been working with brands like Oracle, Microsoft, Unilever, uh, a bunch of them. Now, uh, these companies are big, and they, I'm sure, have teams within, like innovation teams, like you talked about, or exploration teams, which kind of explore the future and opportunities and th- things like that. Why do you think companies need someone from outside to come and tell something as fundamental and uh, you know meaningful as what you what you do let me let me ask you a question has your mom not always told you to do one thing for about 40 years and then you hear it for the first mm-hmm. time ever somebody else and all of a sudden it makes sense so at that you know I, I don't make you know what i do obviously bring a lot of new thinking into the space but to be honest with you I, the future is the future we have access to the same uh trend reports we have right. access to the same singularities, blog posts. I mean, right. we're all watching the same right. thing. You know, right. I mean, information is ubiquitously available. It's how you put it into story form. And that story process is what awakens curiosity and wisdom within people. And so for me, it's really about going in there and, and, and trying to show them a perspective that they haven't been able to have before in the process of storytelling so that I take them on a journey where they laugh and they cry and they need to take responsibility for how our immature masculine ways have brought humanity to a fantastic place, but we're starting to ruin the world based on this greed. Right. And so we have to take an audience through a realization process of, look, your psychology, the future, our impact has to become elegant and deliberate in order to increase the vibration of the human fabric so that we are not leaving our kids with a toilet of a place based on egotistical greed and so it's really about bringing the awareness of self and the future into the organization where i think all innovation departments are just talking innovation and also a lot of them are stuck in vertical innovation meaning that they want to make themselves better at what they're existingly doing and i always come in and say what you're existingly doing is one way to make money but there's many ways to make money and make an impact if you really just study human need states and expectations rather than your capabilities So let go of your capabilities and prepare for what the consumer wants. Find the people from around the world to bring those solutions. I'll give you one very simple example. Mm -hmm. Uber uses 47 platforms and apps to make Uber. Mm -hmm. Do you know how many Uber owns? One. 46 of those platforms are available to you and me. Mm -hmm. That means that the solutions are available. You just must understand what your consumer wants. Speaking of vertical and horizontal innovation actually made me think of John himself. When he lost everything, money, marriage, and everything in between, he had to find a way to literally reinvent himself. Or perhaps, more rightly, rediscover himself. So, uh, you, you know, when you were down in the rut, you reinvent yourself. You completely, and you've done that in the past. You've launched a shoe business in South Africa, and then you launched other businesses. Now, when can you kind of give me a sense of the moment that you came into the realization that this, what you just, what you are doing today, is something you should be doing um, at that point? You know that you should talk. Yeah, and- it- yeah, it only happened three years ago, you know. It's actually very new for me um, in context of when, I, when I'm on stage, I'm with people that have been speaking for 20 years and have written five, six, ten books. Right. And I'm pretty new, and, 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 and I think the impact that I'm having is um, sometimes much larger than them. And, and the reason for that is that the pain that I've gone through through my divorce and my bankruptcy, and, and really my divorce was my catalyst that when I turned mm. 40 – 
I got divorced and uh, that was the catalyst into the speaking world. And hmm. what I'm really good at, I mean, listen, I'm, I'm very bad at many, many, many things, but right. really what I'm very good at is, is taking a lesson and trying to turn it around in my head so that I make it a lesson rather than a pain point. And hmm. so it took me a few months to really get out of the, the, the tough space I was in after my, my divorce. And when I was able to come out of that and alchemize that pain into the gold that I have now, I brought with me so much power and mm. so much healing that when I'm on stage and when I'm talking, that is really what's coming across. That power and that clarity of thought right. is really what's coming across. And I know you before the interview, and, and I'm getting interviewed later today as well, and I get questions often from people to help me prepare for the interview, and I, I actually never read the questions because mm. when you have clarity of thought, you never need to prepare. You're speaking about what's going on inside your head. So right. my divorce was the catalyst to bring me into the speaking space, and uh, a lot of people enjoyed listening to me, which was one, which was weird to me because I used to always think that people thought just like I did. I just didn't think that my thinking was that unique, and mm. the more I spoke to people, the more they said, you know, you need to be speaking to be more to you need to be speaking to more people about these things. And initially I thought it was strange, but eventually I realized it's a quite a lucrative world and there's conferences all around the world paying some incredibly high prices for people to come and speak for half an hour to forty five minutes and now I'm in the privileged world of doing that. Beautiful. Um you know I I get curious to always understand the first moves somebody makes because we all know that Bill Gates is this billionaire we know Warren Buffett, everything. But then those first moves, what they made, what was the first step they took that brought them to no, where they I, are today? If I, can give some advice, if I can give you some advice and really break it down and, and take it away from this sure. large sort of, like what does it mean what that first step is? And for me, and I think if you think about what Warren Buffett did and if you think about what my, Bill Gates did, is they followed their highest excitement. As simple as that is what makes you most excited, what shines brightest, go there. Beautiful. And what most of us have done, I use this picture of an Indian man uh, with his daughter in one of my keynotes when I'm speaking about the future of the workplace. Mm -hmm. And the daughter says to the Indian man, says, Daddy, I want to be an actor. And the daddy says, no, you're pronouncing it wrong. You mean doctor. And so that, that concept is logical thinking that our fathers and mothers have always had, is that don't worry about the passion. Go and get a job that's going to pay the school fees, you know? And that's a problem because that doesn't allow you to follow your highest excitement. And then the other way we make decisions is from primal desires of more, the teenage boy syndrome, which half the world's stuck in, you know? Right. Is how much more watches can I have? How many more cars can I have? How much more clothes can I have? How much? And that's just a childish way of getting recognition from the outside world. Right. And so we have to let go of those two decision-making processes. And if you think about Bill Gates and Warren Buffett and think about Elon Musk, these people don't follow logical scenarios. They don't follow primal desires of greed. Mm. They are investing in their excitement. They're investing in what shines brightest for them. And when everybody around them is telling them they're crazy, mm. Their hearts are telling them they're right. And so they push through. Right. And so if you want to break it down to a minute-by-minute minute decision-making process, go go where, what, go where things make you most excited. Beautiful. Very nicely put. Um, John, uh, you get in, you know, nevertheless, companies want people for the fresh thinking and you get invited. Typically, who are these kinds of people? I'm just trying to understand who are these people in, in companies who kind of empathize uh, with with you know w more about the future in the way you do than what traditionally companies do. So who are these f kinds of people? Are these CEOs who reach out to you? I'm, I think not. Um, I think you know it, it, it's always different. Uh, to be honest with you, there isn't one type of person. <clears throat> Every business is under serious pressure for profit and preparation for the future, mm. which is the most ironic thing because you can't squeeze out quarterly profits and prepare for the future. <laughs> there, there has to right. be a, you have to put some of your, 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 your nuts away for winter so that when the winter comes, you can have some cash flow. But what most businesses do is that we need quarterly profits over everything else and you must prepare for the future. So there's this panic. And so right. when people are reaching out to me, they've either read my book and they're either the PA or the HR director or the CIO or the CFO or the CEO. It's just, I don't know, it comes from all sorts of different places. And because I'm quite, um, I'm quite um, active on LinkedIn and on Instagram and on Facebook and I'm always putting out content, I have the luxury, as everybody else does in today's world, 
to put my message out and for it to be heard by thousands of not hundreds of thousands of people. Right. And in that process, I have no idea who calls me to these <laughs> businesses. Sometimes, you know, I got an email the other day from Russia to say, come, we want you to come and speak. And I was like, Russia, like, what do you mean? St. Petersburg, I don't know anybody there. He says, no, right. we saw a video of yours. We bought your book and we want you to come and talk at our conference. Beautiful. So that was purely to understand who empathizes with with a, with a situation yeah. that's important enough. So, um, you know, you've worked with companies in different forms, speaking, workshops, consulting, whatnot. What do you see are some of the biggest mistakes these companies are making to, in order to say we want to get future ready? They don't want to get future ready. And I'll tell you why. <laughs> they, they, they say they want to get future ready, but they still want to make profit like they used to. And they want to make more profit like they used to. Now, if you think about the heroes that we look up to, the Jeff Bezos, mm. the Elon Musks, the Warren Buffetts, look at how they live their lives. Very calm, very mm. chilled, mm. not about profits. It's about investing, about making an impact. Famously, Amazon mm. didn't make profit for 20 years. Uh, Tesla is definitely not about making a profit because every time he makes four cents, he starts a new flipping business and he stops production and battery production to go and help Puerto Rico. And I mean, that guy's not into profit. Right. Like, it's irrelevant profit for him, you know? Right. It's really just a 30 year plan to have everybody in electric cars and the whole world saved from transportation. Right. And so it's, it's these people that are understanding preparation for the future. And if you're not able to let go of that, you know, I go to a lot of conferences and the chairman or the CEO will stand up and start a 60 minute keynote and he'll talk 35 to 45 minutes on the balance sheet. And then he'll talk five minutes on the consumer, five minutes on the employee and five minutes on good luck. And let's kick it. Let, let, let's have a great year. Mm. And I often get up on stage and I, and I say, with all respect, you're not consumer focused. You're not employee focused. You're balance sheet focused. If you're employee focused and, and you would spend time talking about the employee, not your balance sheet. And so when I see a business only talking balance sheet, they are not preparing for the future. They're trying to repeat the past. Now, everyone has a way of trying to read patterns, especially when it comes to business. We call them trends. Now, we all know that there are sophisticated algorithms that companies like Google use to analyze trends. But I was curious what John used to analyze trends. For one, I did know that he had a way of doing this and it was not using a Google-like tool. That's so awkward. Let's get into a little bit of what you do. So as entrepreneurs, creators, we are constantly kind of scanning for what's new, what's coming, what's changing. You, you kind of do this for a living. So can you kind of walk us through how you analyze trends? Great. Um, so first, let me start by saying that businesses today um, have a consumer that's hyper-informed mm -hmm. and hypersensitive. If you wanted to get a customer to buy from you um, in the 60s, 70s, and 80s, you just needed to get their attention once. And because there was so little yeah. advertising around, you would just see one chocolate bar, and then they would repeat that chocolate bar ad. I don't know about you, but here in South Africa, we saw the same chocolate ad bar for years because there just wasn't anybody else making ads. You know, yeah. there was like five ads on TV, and it was repeated. Mm. <clears throat> and then what happened was – in the, in the 80s and 90s, you, they needed you to spend a bit of time with that brand. Mm. And if you spent just 30 seconds, 40 seconds, of like maybe a minute, you'd really get enthused by that brand. Then, then you had to start creating an experience. Now it's all about experiences. How do you get a consumer to in, in awaken all their five senses and, and really have an experience with your brand that's not forgettable? Mm. But this is only today's business. Tomorrow's business is about creating a cult following. And really, how do you create a cult following is you really start to speak to people's values. And when you become a cult leader, and when I say cult, I obviously don't mean in the negative term. I'm talking right. about people right. that follow a brand that they love and believe in. Right. And when you become a leader like that and a brand like that, you'll have customers that you'll call super fans will come to you no matter what's going on. They never check price. They always mm. trust you because they've built that trust with you. And also what else happens is you attract the best employees in the world. Mm. And now what you have are the best two sets of humans that you can have, best employees, best customers, and now you have a cult following. 
right. and that cult following will go until you actually do something wrong. But you won't most probably do anything wrong because that leadership is heartfelt. Mm-hmm. That's step one. Step two is you've got to understand that the world is motivated by different things. And the world is set up into three mega markets. Hmm. The first market is called the mature awareness market. And this mature awareness market is cities like Berlin, Amsterdam, pockets of New York, pockets of San Francisco, Cape Town, Sydney. These cities are underpinned by a mega trend called guilt-free consumption. Mm -hmm. These consumers make decisions about everything based on guilt of what the impact is on what's happening on earth. That's why people in these cities are not are wealthy, but the way they choose to show their status and their mm. social capital is by riding bicycles, growing their own vegetables, mm. wearing conscious clothing, being vegan. These right. are the things that make this market really sexy. Mm. Then you get the emerging cities in the world, Dubai, Beijing, Mumbai, uh, Kuala Lumpur, Johannesburg, these cities are only starting to make money for the first generation. Just mm-hmm. one generation ago, the families in these cities were fishermen, were riding bicycles, were poor. Right. And so cities now, these cities are underpinned by a mega trend called conspicuous consumption. That's why, when, what do you do when you go to Dubai? You shop. What do you do when you go to du- Beijing? You shop. What do you do when you go to Johannesburg? You shop. It's always about shop. It's about recognition. And then you get the less affluent markets in the world. These are the slums in India, the townships in South Africa, the the ghettos in Mexico. Right. These markets are underpinned by a mega trend called value-driven consumption. So if you understand the world just basically in three mega markets, then you start realizing that every consumer in those markets requires something different in order to make them loyal towards you. That's why brands like Louis Vuitton and Hugo Boss are dying in mature awareness markets because those markets don't see that as luxury. Right. And then you see Louis Vuitton and Hugo Boss booming in emerging markets because there it's perceived as luxury. So really it's about understanding human need states and expectations and understanding that hyper-transparency brings hypersensitivity, and your leadership and your organization have to create cult following. Wow. You know, you, you talk about the future. In fact, when I look at the two of your books one is titled uh, what's your moonshot future proof your yourself and your business in the age of exponential disruption and the other one is magnetize stop the chase understand the change take control of the future now this the bylines are pretty interesting uh, and they kind of pique my curiosity what can you kind of quickly give an understanding as to what sure. these two books stand for yeah so What's Your Moonshot was based on a speech that JFK gave on the, I think it was the 26th of May, 1961, where he said, we will put a man on the moon. And he had no technology to do so. And no, like he didn't know how he was going to do it. He just created a moonshot, a huge, bigger than goal life. Hmm. I mean, huge, bigger than goal, a uh, bigger than life goal. And hmm. what he did was eight years later or nine years later, they had put a man on the moon. Right. So what I wanted right. to do from this book is firstly is do you realize that you're not dreaming big enough because you haven't exposed yourself to the technology that's available out there. Hmm. If you wanted to speak to a million people just a few hundred years ago, you need to be the emperor of an empire. Hmm. If you wanted to speak to a million people just 25 years ago, you need to be the prime minister of a country. Today you can speak to billions of people online and that's just what, what I mean, think right. about that access that we have. But most of us just think small and it's because we're sitting in victim mindsets. So what I do in the book is I break down the, the, the types of victims, what it means to be a victim, my stories about a victim, mm-hmm. what I use as tools to get into victor mindset rather than victim mindset. Mm-hmm. And then I dissect the future. And then I talk about how you build a future focused business in this state of exponential disruption. Now, that's the first book, is how big are you thinking? How bold are you and how courageous are you, your questions about the future? Hmm. The second book, Magnetize, is about how elegant, how deliberate, and how conscious are your questions about the future? Because it's one thing to use business on a large scale to make money and to to really make a profit, but really, ultimately, how elegant are you in doing it? Uh, Are you Hmm. being kind? To the people working for you? Are you being patient with suppliers? Are you are you just looking at the process in a long-term view so that everybody is making money along the way and everybody's getting a fair deal? And so what I do in this book is really talk about the motivating factors we have as human beings, where a lot of us carry these emotional states called shadows. 
and the shadow psychology states push our lives in ways that we don't want them to go. And for example, any emotion that your religion or your society told you that you shouldn't have, that's bad, mm. that goes into your shadow. And so right. if you think about the Bible belt in America is also the porn belt in America. Mm -hmm. And the reason for that is because religion tells you that sex is bad. And mm -hmm. so what happens is religious people become the most sexually active undercover in secret. And these are shadow states and organizations around the world are led by people with deep shadows, the need for acknowledgement, the need for more, the need for not having the confidence internally, but needing it from the outside. And this drives their behavior to become ridiculously greedy. And so what I'm trying to do in the second book wow. is just highlight how we can change our motivating factors so that deliberate, elegant and conscious business becomes obvious, not something you have to try and do. And I'm busy writing my third book, which is called Foresight, but I'll tell you about that just now. And as we continue to speak, I started to have this strong feeling to understand John more as a person. What really motivates him? Why is he doing what he's doing? Where, where does he derive his strength from? Great. You know, you kind of been working so much uh, ever since you kind of hit that low point and even before that. And, uh, you know, as as entrepreneurs and um, people who are kind of creating work of art, which you are doing in, in your talks and writing, every project that you pick, every decision that you may make, you are kind of building this legacy. Um, and you know what i what i kind of consider as a body of work that we kind of leave behind when we move move on is there a kind of work that uh you always wanted to do that you just haven't had this chance to work on so far great question and um, before i answer it i, I want to explain i did a video a little while back and i said what is greatness Hmm. And greatness is, for me, greatness is becoming the best version of yourself and adding that to the fabric of society and humankind so that you are helping raise the vibrational status of what we are doing here. And hmm. if we have kids, the number one thing you want them to do is move into a world that's kind, conscious, collaborative. And so in order for us to create that sort of world, we have to become that ourselves and then add that into the fabric of society. And so my body of work which is so weird for you to say that because it does, it's becoming a body of work because right. no, it's just, I, I can't help but to keep sharing, whether it's through video blogging or, or writing books or doing keynotes. Mm -hmm. So for me, the, the, the sort of, the, the, that is what greatness is and that's what we should all be aiming at. And, and to be honest with you, the only thing, the, there's two things that I have I still want to do is there's nothing in specific that I haven't done yet that I that I that, that I haven't done yet that I still want to do. I, I've kind of done everything I want to do because at every moment I'm following my highest excitement. So it's leading mm. into everything I want to do. The two goals that I have right now and the two intentions that I have as a New York Times bestseller mm -hmm. and to be on stage with Simon Sinek and to be a contemporary with him in New York. And uh, so for me, I love what he does. I love how he, what he stands for. I love the fact that he's got a big heart and the way he speaks. And um, he's had a couple of New York Times bestsellers. And, and what that does, it allows your message to really be felt by a lot of the people in the world. Wow. What? I mean, there are a lot of good speakers. There are a lot of good authors out there. And, uh, you know, personally, I, I, I love Simon Sinek ever since I first uh, read his or saw his TED talk, but then what kind of makes you say Simon Sinek and not some other even better Listen, bigger Gary, speaker? Gary, Gary Vee is great. Um, I just don't think that he's as conscious as he could be. I think he's still quite profit-driven. Hmm. Um, and uh, uh, Harry, uh, um, Ariana Uffington, hmm. I like her. Um, she's more conscious in her approach. I just like people that speak about the heart and speak about leadership in new ways hmm. and talk about leading the world into a new optimistic space. And I think Simon Sinek, so Ken Robinson, these hmm. people have got a very open heart and they speak with big hearts. Um, I find a lot of speakers that are very good. They're just not speaking with their hearts. They think they're speaking with their minds and their, their egos. And it doesn't mean that their message isn't good and it doesn't mean their message doesn't make an impact. It's just the way they deliver it is not something that I resonate with. So that's why Simon Sinek and Sir Ken Robinson are my, are my favorites, you know? 
I know, I know you've had the lowest point in your life, losing all your money that and and a marriage. I know that that's that could be pretty pretty significant in one's life. But then when you look at uh look back right into your life, I'm sure it's not just that one point that uh, because of which you are what you are today. What are the moments that uh, uh you see in your life career thus far? I know you have a long way to go that has made you the person that you are today. Okay, great. Well, great question and um I often never bring this topic up until I've you've asked this question twice now, <laughs> and I initially didn't I didn't want to go there. And I'm I'm going to go there now. <clears throat> I am a um, huge fan and student and um, lover of something called ayahuasca. Mm-hmm. Do you know it? Nope. <clears throat> ayahuasca is a brew that is cooked in the Amazon jungle by shamans. Wow. That is made up of a leaf and a vine that grows naturally in the forest. Mm-hmm. And when it is absorbed into your body, when you drink it in a shamanic ceremony, mm-hmm. the brew transports you to another world. And in wow. that process of transportation into another world, the spirit of Mother Ayahuasca, who mm-hmm. is the the person that or the spirit that you are engaging with, mm-hmm. she shows you your life from a very objective point of view. She shows you your life from a very healed and loving place. And you start to realize that a lot of your memories are actually subjective stories that you're holding on to to protect your ego. And a lot of us don't even realize that a lot of our memories that we have are fictitious. They're not real. Conspiracy theories. We, we can change any of our past experiences to fit in with the story that we want to keep telling ourselves. So people that feel that they are people are being racist to them, that's a story they keep repeating in their heads and they keep confirming that the world is racist. Right. So ayahuasca redesigns, recalibrates and adjusts your memories. And when you adjust your memories, your now changes and your future exponentially shifts to be much more focused on what you're creating than rather being stuck in the past. So I first drank ayahuasca in 2011, hmm. and I have in every year since with uh, shamans uh, in around the world, mostly in South America and here in South Africa. Wow. And that was the catalyst for me to understand that there was a plant that is God-made that has the power to help you heal the deepest parts of your subconscious mind. I'm going to Google Google for that. I'll spell it for you. It's A Y A H U A S C A. And do you want to know a secret uh, that not many people know, mm-hmm. unless done ayahuasca? Is have you watched a movie called Avatar? Yes. Okay, so if you think back onto Avatar and you're going to go watch this movie again now, is Avatar is one full ayahuasca ceremony. And I'll tell you why you know that. Is right at the end of the movie, they all get together under that tree. Yes. And they thank the tree and they say, Thank you, Mother Awa. <laughs> And Mother is Mother Ayahuasca. And so what happens in that movie is that guy is um, handicapped and he goes into a machine and he comes out into a reptilian psychedelic world. And what he does for the first half of the movie is defend the greed of America. Mm -hmm. And then he realizes that he's defending the wrong side and he switches sides and realizes that love is the only way. Haven't gotten lost in the woods, have you? Forget what team you're playing for. Strong prey on the weak. And he fights his ego or the American greed away mm-hmm. and finally thanks the plants for have helped him to come into collaboration and cohesiveness with nature and the local people. In our real lives, we are emotionally handicapped. We drink ayahuasca and come out into a psychedelic reptilian world and we realize that our ego is just bullshit. <laughs> it's nothing. It's a fictitious story we've been telling ourselves and we realize that love, collaboration and cohesiveness, elegance and the flow of life is much more powerful and we switch and we come out and we thank Mother Ayahuasca for the ceremony and we leave. Wow. Wow. Avatar. 
Yeah, I'm. I'm certainly going to go back and uh, watch the movie once more and uh, and relate to what you what you just said. This is very interesting. You know, like I said, you you still have a long way to go. But then, so far, what does success mean to you personally? Great question. Yeah, success means I can do what I want, when I want, with who I want. That's wow. success. That's Because you know, having the luxury of time, mm-hmm. money, spontaneity. courage that's success you know you and you don't always have to have a lot of money you can create a lot of amazing things around you with no money mm. um it's just about the belief system that we carry of what's available to us and a lot of us think that if we don't pay for something there's no way we can get it which is such a rubbish concept is that abundance comes in all forms not right. just in cash so for me it's uh, what i can do um do what i want when i want with who i want that's success that's awesome that's awesome you know you 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 have multiple aspects of your business and i know that that was the realization which is those rituals and habits i i know they've kind of played played a big role but then what are those habits that you have embraced ever since you hit the lowest point that you think is something that you is worth sharing great question again um you know we have to take responsibility for what we think about mm-hmm. and a lot of the times we don't realize that our thoughts are taking us into a dow- downward spiral and we could very easily choose to think about things that take us into an upward spiral mm-hmm. and what happens to us is we become addicted to anxiousness or anger or to feeling sorry for ourselves we don't even realize we're doing it after a while mm-hmm. so the biggest thing i can give anybody any sort of advice is be very particular moment by moment in what you choose to focus on because that becomes your reality and so for me is like i still have to remind myself not as often as i used to but i still have to remind myself as you know the potentiality of what can happen is based on what my expectation is based on the stories and beliefs i have about about what's about to come and that's made through my thinking And so minute by minute moment by moment am I thinking about things that are making me feel more powerful about where I'm going right. or I'm feeling sorry for myself and I'm feeling angry and blaming and anxious and worried hmm. and so that that's all it is even though that's a massive thing but that's all really it is it's a moment by moment choice and I finish off my keynotes and I finish off my second book with all of this is your incredible privilege of choice hmm. wonderful you know john they say that we are some of the five people that we hang out with now yeah. who do you kind of surround yourself with all the times and who do you go to when you really need some help or advice well you know i have coaches you know i have very professional coaches i have three coaches that i work with um and uh, there's very specifics that i speak to each one of them about mm. and then i have a very close knit of friends that i've been friends with for decades and uh, the five of us uh, or four of us um, really are very tight and you know my brand has grown quite a lot and i'm and i'm pretty well known here in south africa and uh, you the the when you when your brand does grow you almost gravitate back to your original friends that knew right. you before anything happened and so these friends are dear for to me and i love them so much but i also am very clear that when you're wanting to speak about deep psychological stuff your friends are great to have banter with but they're not professionals mm-hmm. and they're not there like a um somebody who is giving you 100% of their focus because you're having a conversation with them with coaching you have a person that's trained dedicated and focused to listen to you for that hour so i have a distinct difference with the people i hang around with the five people i hang around with are really important mm-hmm. but the people i hire to help me become superhuman are as important wonderful you know when i uh, looked at your website the one thing that stood out to me i don't know if this is something that everyone sees but then just under your name and your logo you have this M- mcml xxv which yeah. is in your logo and yeah. um, you know I, i know it stands for 1975 in roman letters but then a what you know what does it translate really is it the same thing and b why do you have it there you know i because of ayahuasca um you get to i don't know i think you get to kind of like 
access different aspects of you and I have very strong Roman ties for some reason or not. I have no idea why. My whole life I have. Hmm. Always enthralled by Roman stories, always enthralled by Caesar and always enthralled by the Roman world and what they achieved. And um, I just want to do celebrate my birth year in Roman. And I find it very strong and very powerful and I'm established in 1975 and that's when I arrived and I want to celebrate that. Although in my new branding and for my new book, that's leaving the branding. But I thought for the year that I had it there, it was important to share the, the year I arrived on Earth. That's, I've never seen anyone do that and a very nice way of celebrating. Um, Thank you. So if, if you were me sitting here having this conversation with you, John, what's that one question you would ask that I didn't ask you so far? This question right now. <laughs> the question just asked me. That's such a good question. I have no idea. I mean, listen, you know how many times people have asked me to start a podcast? And I'm like, guys, I'm really good at answering questions. I'm really bad at asking questions. And I'm really great at listening. But um, asking pertinent questions on the go, I think it's quite a skill set. And I'm not really – you know, I think you've asked really good questions about what are your motivating factors? What was the turning point? What got you to move from that to this? What is your legacy? I mean, you've asked some really great questions. And, and obviously, you know, this is something that you do and you're passionate about. I guess, you know, I guess it's like, like what's next? You know, I think I imagine like what's next and, and how audacious is your goals for next? How big are you thinking? And uh, if you're not, why not? Right. And so that's kind right. of my thing is like I'm always asking people, why can't you be bigger, more audacious, more courageous and bolder with where you're going and, and take a bigger chunk out of life, you know? Don't be a passenger. That's a really good question, John. Now that you've asked the question, can you help me with your answer to this question? Of course, of course. Yeah, I mean, well, I, I did mention it earlier. Is the, the best of the best in the world uh, in what I do are the people that – have got New York Times bestsellers because their work has been celebrated by global powers, you know, and global people. And for me, that's the ultimate, you know, it's like, it's like an Olympic, it's an mm. Olympic gold medal. So New York Times bestseller on stage with Simon Sinek, uh, much more international talks. And I am already speaking quite a lot internationally, but really to, to be more focused internationally and um, to start working in the world's major capitals. And right. uh, for me, it's just how much more impact can I have on the world around me and mm -hmm. how much more clarity and courage can I actually bring to the people listening to me and reading my books? Because ultimately, the gift that you receive, your genius that you access, the only rule that you have is that you have to keep sharing it in the service of humanity. And if you stop I believe you'll stop getting access to your genius. If you had one chance to share some words of wisdom with the, the John Senek, who you were 10 years back, what would it be? Calm down. <laughs> calm down. Relax. <laughs> like, even now, you know, I have to remind myself often, just calm down, just chill, be more elegant, be calmer, play the long game. Don't always have to win every game, you know, just relax. That was John Sane. He is a transpecialist, futurist, and an international speaker based out of Cape Town and New York. John has been doing some brilliant work with his unique approach to looking at the future. He's also someone who's consciously building his brand both online and offline. Do check out John's website and videos to know more about what I'm saying. You can check out all the links to John's website and his Instagram, LinkedIn accounts in the show notes that you can find at designyourthinking.com slash S2E16. That's season two, episode 16. It's now time for a quick sneak peek of what's coming up next week, just for you. I've never cared, like I've never been afraid to reach out and talk to anybody. And I think, I think, okay, well, if they're, as long as you're polite, you know, so, um, say, uh, you know, it was, we wanted Stella McCartney. So we emailed Stella McCartney and we're, and you, as long as you're, as I said, you, people don't mind. I mean, some people might tell you to get lost, but very often I find if you're a big fan, like, hi Stella, 
I love your clothes so much. I think they're so amazing. You're such an inspiration. Um, and, um, that sort of thing. And then you say, look, Hey, I'd love to work with you. Um, basically they're, they're not going to, even if they're like, Oh no, we, we can't work with you. They're not going to knock you back. You know what I mean? So I find it, I mean, I still do that. I'll still like send a letter to James Cameron. Not that I've got a response yet, but I think he's off filming avatar, but just saying, you total inspiration for me. I love your work. Here's my film. I mean, I think you just have to be bold. That's an interview with Sophia Banks that's coming up next week. She is a celebrity stylist turned filmmaker who was so determined to succeed as a filmmaker that she decided to relocate from Australia to LA to further her filmmaking career. From styling celebrities like Priyanka Chopra, Bradley Cooper, to again starting a career from scratch as a filmmaker, well, we get into all of that and more in an exciting hour-long interview. I just can't wait for you to listen to that. It's going to be a really exciting episode. So to make sure that you don't miss out, hit subscribe wherever you are listening to the show right now. No matter what podcast app you use, click subscribe. If you are listening from your computer, you should see a subscribe button right on the player or somewhere around on the same page. So if you like this episode and the show, I really appreciate you leaving a rating and review for the show on iTunes. If you are on an Apple device, you can head over to designyourthinking.com slash iTunes. Just type that on your browser and it will take you to iTunes where you can leave both a rating and review. The show is also available on Spotify, Google Play and YouTube. Just type designyourthinking.com slash Spotify, Google Play or YouTube or any of your favorite podcast app for that matter. Appreciate you taking the time today. Until I see you in the next episode, take care and cheers, my friend.